Most of the time when I preach during the Green Sundays, I say that the readings are mostly about the cost, the ways and the means, and the nature of Christian discipleship, and that is true. But also in the readings, we, and particularly as we come into this time of the year, in July and August, are also about the continuity of God's purposes in the history of salvation. During the great 50 days of Easter, I always mention that one of the parts of the fourfold shape of the Easter liturgy, which is ground zero for uh, Christians who are part of liturgical churches, that the history of salvation uh, looms large during that time of year because the readings are such as to give us um, an idea of the great sweep of God's presence to creation, God's faithfulness, God's presence in the hearts of all faithful people. And in the readings for today, we have some uh, inkling of that as, as well as uh, our response to the divine initiative. So it might be uh, styled as God's action and our response. So I intend to preach on all three readings from Second Samuel, from Ephesians, and from Mark's Gospel, because they have all something to do with the idea of the continuity of God's purposes uh, in the history of salvation. First, in 2 Samuel, we have uh, King David. Once again, we're going to be reading about this for another week or two at least. And King David is in Jerusalem now, and he has a house. He has built a house. He's beginning to settle in. <clears throat> so... The kingdom of Israel is beginning to solidify, and we're beginning now to contemplate uh, how we understand our place in the world, what is the nature of the covenant that was established between God and his people, and how in this age are we faithful to it. So David's in his house, and he's called on by Nathan the prophet. We will hear from Nathan the prophet again in the not-too-distant future. And David says to him, you know, here I am in my house now. I have this nice house. And God, the presence of God, is dwelling in the ark in a tent. So he's feeling a little out of sorts, like maybe there's some imbalance here. And he begins to broach the subject with Nathan about a future dwelling for the ark of the covenant for the ark of God. So Nathan listens to him and in some sense uh, seems to agree, but he leaves and overnight Nathan has uh, receives an oracle from God that he feels compelled now to pass along to King David. And so he comes to see him and he tells him that the oracle that he's received says, you know, you can't control where God is. I'm not, God is not limited to the ark and the ark of God in the tent. And I have been able to accompany you throughout your journeys as the people of Israel begin to get some new self-definition. You know, the, the purpose of leadership in the Hebrew Bible has to do with over and over, it begins with Moses, but over and over again, to turn the people's gaze away from the place of remembered good times forward 
to where they will receive a new sense of self-definition and a deeper and fuller understanding of God's purposes for them and how they can cooperate with those purposes as they live. And that is still the same thing for us today. And so King David is struggling with the idea, how do we now understand coalescing the people of Israel into some cohesive social and political organization? And what is the role of God's presence in the midst of all that? How do we understand the relationship between God and what we would call in 2012 the secular world, which would have been unintelligible to King David and everybody else? in his day and time. So Nathan is saying, maybe now is not the time to build some place. What he's talking about, of course, is the temple. Now, the, the writer of 2 Samuel happens to have an advantage because he's writing after the temple was built. But he's writing a story about before the temple was built. The temple is going to be built by King Solomon, David's son. The continuation of the Halcyon days of Israel. You must remember, too, that everybody in the time of Jesus, both before, just before and after his earthly ministry, were yearning for a Messiah that was going to embody the halcyon days of Israel, which was during the reign of King David and his successors. And so the Messiah, part of the way in which the Messiah would be in the world, would be to reflect this uh, Davidic monarchy, a kingly Messiah, in addition to a priestly Messiah. So Nathan says, now is not the time and you need to focus on how God moves freely through his people. And how we understand that reality and that presence, which is both external, leading us into a deeper and fuller understanding of God's purposes for us, and internal, the illuminative processes of God at work in the hearts of all faithful people, and the knowledge that God is steadfast and faithful and will never go away. So how we respond to this in some way is given to us in the letter to the Ephesians. When I was in seminary, and it's probably, it's probably true today, I would guess, there, is a fair, there are a fair number of New Testament scholars who believe that uh, Ephesians was not written by Paul. That it is, if you want it, the 3995 term, it is Deuteropauline. Some of you may think, what difference does it make, right? Why are we worrying about this? Well, there's, there is some, some advantage to understanding Ephesians as Deuteropauline, not because we want to debunk this, but we want to say something about the development of Paul's own outlook and the theology that he brings to the nature of Christianity in his successors. So if you believe in this hypothesis, then the author of Ephesians is what is called in biblical scholarship an heir, H-E-I-R, of Paul. And can give you some idea about the developing thought in Ephesians that Ephesians gives to us. 
because it clearly is an amazing summary of Paul's thought. And if it wasn't Paul who wrote it, then it sure was somebody who really got inside him and understood what he did. I tend to be conservative about these matters, and I accept the Pauline authorship of Ephesians. But it is interesting to read it from that vantage point, because you get some insights sometimes that maybe you wouldn't if you didn't understand that that might be a possibility. How do they think about this? How could they know? Well, one of the reasons is, is that when you look at the manuscripts and you look at the Greek text, you begin to see that in Ephesians, the way it's written doesn't resemble in terms of syntax, figures of speech, the way a person who normally writes the way they write, that doesn't exist in Ephesians. So Paul always dictated his letters to secretaries. So maybe he had a different secretary for Ephesians. That's entirely possible. But when you read the Greek, read it in Greek, everywhere in the uh, undisputed letters, Paul begins many sentences with the Greek word un, which means uh, therefore or you know. Da-da. So this is non-existent in Ephesians. It's not written that way. So some people who focus on the minutiae say, well, here's some support for that idea. So I'm just telling you that's only one of the reasons why some people exhaust their Ph.D. thesis on something like that. But here's what Paul is getting at in Ephesians today. He's speaking about some progress that has taken place during his missionary work. And at the beginning of his missionary work, we see a division that exists within Christianity. And the division is between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. There was a divide. And if you, again, read it in Greek, you'll see Paul speaks of the Jewish Christians, of which he is one, as uh, those who are in us, our people, and the Gentiles, which are those people. And the Greek word for that is ethne. Where, have you ever heard a word similar to ethne? Okay. So we know it's those people and our people. And by the time we read in Ephesians about this, uh, they have come together. The unifying spirit of God has been at work in the hearts of the faithful people of the Christian community, and they are now together. And so by extension, what we understand in terms of our response is to be people of peace, reconciliation, and inclusion. Because as it turns out, human beings tend to uh, think up ways to build walls between one another. You know? It's like the, there's a, an old joke about uh, somebody dies and goes to heaven and they're walking around and they all of a sudden encounter a 12-foot-high brick wall that seems to go on and on and on and on and has an enormous uh, circumference. And so he asked one of the people who's with him, what is that? He said, well, it's a wall. I, I know, but what's inside the wall? And he said, well, it's the Baptists. Uh, they don't believe anybody else is here. 
You can say that about it. I'm not picking on the Baptists. You can say that about anybody for whom uh, exclusion is, you know, their meat and drink. So Paul is speaking today about the necessity to break down those barriers and to reconcile. What he's speaking about is being faithful to the church's mission. What is the mission of the church? The mission of the church is to restore all people to unity with God and each other in Christ. Page 855 of the Book of Common Prayer. That is the mission of the church. So it isn't just the mission of all the official individuals in the institution. It's the, it is the mission of all faithful Christian people to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. So this is a reading about um, allowing the unifying spirit of God to operate uh, in our interaction with one another. And you know, God's unifying spirit, if we understand it as God coming from within to enlighten and strengthen us, is available to have an effect, a unifying effect and a positive serenity-making effect on our internal, emotional, spiritual, and mental states. And so Paul is speaking about the full way in which we understand the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. In Mark's gospel, we have a commercial message for the contemplative life. We have a commercial message for the healing power of God. We have a commercial message for sympathy and compassion. And we have a historical rehearsal of Jesus, the victim of celebrity status. It's gotten to the place where in his earthly ministry, where he is at the present moment, both he and the disciples are not able to get away from the crowds. And this reading begins with the disciples rehearsing to Jesus the success or the failures of their missionary journey. And he recognizes that they're exhausted from this spiritually and emotionally and they need to get away. And he said, we need to go away and pray. We need some uh, leisure. We need some time away from all of this. You know, there was a wonderful book that was written about two or three, about a long time ago now, but I mentioned it about two or three weeks ago, written by Josef Pieper, the German philosopher, called Leisure, the Basis of Culture. And he describes the importance of leisure, not like we understand it these days, which is not merely lolling around, which is what I like to do a lot, but it's a little bit more active uh, understanding of what it is. The Greek word for leisure is skole. The Latin translation of skole is skola, and we get from that school. So leisure has something to do with, uh, you know, spending time on those things you need to uh, spend time on. It could be your hobbies. 
It could be learning things that you, you'd, you'd like to learn, not just lolling around, maybe slowing the pace, understanding that. I told at the nine o'clock, when I was a little boy, my grandfather told me one day we're driving back home from the store, and uh, he said, when I was a kid, my father and my mother on Sunday, my father would rent a, a buggy from Kelly's stable in San Francisco, and they would drive to Golden Gate Park and park in the band shell and listen to the concert that was played there every Sunday afternoon. And then when the concert was over, he'd take the, the, the carriage back, back to Kelly's, and the two of them would get on the streetcar, and they'd go down to Jack's Restaurant on Sacramento Street, and they'd eat their dinner. And then they'd come back home on the streetcar, and they'd sit in, in the, what we call the living room, and he'd read, and my great-grandmother would knit. And when I was a kid, they still had as a keepsake the big gas lamp that they used for this. It had big green shades on it on either side, so you could put two chairs there and you could read or knit and see clearly. Now, I don't know about you, but that always seemed to me to be leisure of the best kind. It's slowing things down a little, isn't it? One of my former senior wardens at Christchurch Sausalito said to me that he had a very close friend who was very successful and was able to do lots of different things. He had the resources. And he said, every time we did something together, like on a weekend, we'd be on a plane flying somewhere or driving to somewhere. He was already planning what to do the next weekend. Or what are you going to do a month from now? How can you enjoy yourself if you're always thinking about what the next thing is? rather than live in the moment. So Jesus says to the disciples, we need to go away and pray and we need to be quiet and do this sort of thing. This, by the way, is a biblical passage that has been used by Christian faith traditions who believe in the religious life and its importance. So the real uh, purists in this matter would be monks and nuns, but other people who believe that the contemplative life can be practiced in the world and to be able to carve out time for that kind of reflection and prayer. So that's important. So as they're going, they get near the shore and they see that all the people who have been thronging around them have run ahead and they're there waiting. And instead of, a instead of acting like, boy, I really need to just wait away and do this, they respond. They respond with their abundance to meet other people's need. And Jesus gets out of the boat and he speaks with them and the disciples assist him and then he heals the people that come to him. Next week, we're going to read the second piece to this. This week is about feeding spiritual hunger and thirst about the reign of God and the presence of healing and wholeness. And next week, we're going to read about the feeding of the 5,000 because those are the people who are now going to be fed and there will be food left over. 
So it is about the nature of the abundant power of God's work. Jesus did not want to be thought of as a healer. And he resisted the idea of having to do this all the time. But he never refused anybody who asked to be healed. Because he knew that the healings that he was able to do were signs of the reign of God. That means a world where healing and wholeness are a priority. Where we seek to understand that uh, we don't think about, we're, we're not just as Jesus. Jesus was on the side of the people, but he was not against their leaders. And he was fostering always the idea that we should be together in unity. So this week, think about how you might be an instrument of the healing power of God. Don't think about it in sensational terms, but your presence counts. You are made in God's image and unconditionally loved, accepted, and forgiven. And that is a powerful incentive to be able to make a difference in big and small ways in the world. Give thanks for the presence of God's continuing purpose and presence in the world. The continuity of that presence from as long as we have witness to it. And also understand yourself to be an instrument of reconciliation, peace, and inclusion. Amen.